0: All right, everyone. Welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients. The deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's been good to be back. Had a lot of good guests this week and uh, excited to round it out with somebody who's part of the extended Masari family team, um, Band of Misfits, yeah. uh, Nathaniel Whitmore, uh, who in my opinion is one of the top curators uh, in the industry, probably the top, I believe. Are you still one of only five people that, that um, uh, BitMEX is founder? Um, yes, actually, Arthur, Arthur, Arthur Hayes. Just Arthur Hayes follows eight people in the industry, and and, and LW is one of them. Uh, also has just an epically short uh, Twitter handle. Yeah, um, which which we can get into. But um, uh, I, you're 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 a, a tough person to introduce because you do a lot. You are independent, but you're kind of your own independent brand, yeah. uh, marketing connoisseur, um, crafter of narratives, yeah. uh, general. Uh, likeable person uh, that, that <laughs> somehow has managed to make a name on Twitter uh, without without just getting like pulled <laughs> into the muck and having you know everybody pissed off at you all the time. And weird. So um, why, why don't we start just with with kind of your backstory and um, and make sure that this yeah, uh, yeah we're we're, 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 we're just we're, we're simultaneously so you. To you. Yeah. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about your backstory. How you got into the industry? You know what what your background is that that has allowed you to carve out. This really interesting, powerful niche. It's uh, kind of like a, a one-man brand, um, and and then we can start diving into some of your areas of expertise and and, and some of your kind of more macro, the whole thoughts on the industry. But sure, first, who is the uh, the, the mystery man, Nlw, behind the
1: behind the curtain? <laughs> um, yeah, the backstory. I mean, I have a weird backstory, which I think a lot of people uh, in this industry do. Um, the two parts that I think are most relevant or like obviously connected to crypto are, one, the, on the on the surface, the most uh, clearly connected is that I spent a decade in San Francisco, um, back and forth between VC roles, uh, operator startup roles. Um, I advised a company that went through uh, Y Combinator, the same class as Coinbase, so that was the first um, one of the first exposures that I had uh, to Bitcoin. And, um, and so that, that part was kind of obvious, but it's actually interesting because when I was uh, when I was in San Francisco, uh, especially like those early years when Coinbase was coming up, the narrative of Bitcoin was so, 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 so focused on another mobile payments thing, right? And there's a dozen different like mobile payments things that would help you buy coffee at your thing unbelievably unfathomably more, from mm-hmm. that perspective, you mm-hmm. know? Um, we even, at that company, so I, I, I advised that company when it was at that point, and then later I ended up working with them and helping them uh, basically build out a platform to help corporations learn about new technology. And we were making videos for Coca-Cola about blockchain and Bitcoin as early as like 2015, early 2015. Um, but it's still, what people were interested in was like, what you know, the payments use case and this sort of thing, and uh, and I you know, I know for sure that there were other folks who we were talking about it in different ways back then, but that was the dominant you weren't going deep on it, kind of Silicon Valley story. And it wasn't actually until I left Silicon Valley much later um, and moved away, I live in the Hudson Valley now, we moved back to be closer to family. And it was kind of like revisiting all the things that had been like uh, partially interesting, but I had ignored effectively because I was kind of myopically focused on my last startup. And, um, and, and interestingly, what captivated me about Bitcoin in particular and crypto more broadly uh, at that time when I finally did deep back in, it, it connected actually to the earlier part of my career, which is before I was in San Francisco, uh, I, was, I, I built uh, effectively a program design center for students who want to change the world mm-hmm. at uh, my alma mater. So I went to Northwestern, and it's like the only hat that I have that I like, but um, I was there just after September 11th. And after September 11th, there was an incredible explosion of students who wanted to go abroad. Uh, And in particular, uh, an explosion of students who wanted to go abroad to make a difference. Uh, And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them was that in the 90s, the story was that the world was fixed, like we had won the Cold War and everything was great, when in point of fact the '90s was the deadliest decade since World War II um, by a large, large margin. And so, as everyone got to college, I think you know. Uh, it's how, a, how do you how do you calculate that in terms of the number of people who died in violent conflicts? Uh, where were the where were the conflicts that, that
0: in the '90s? Uh, well, I mean, I, I know there was you know. there was, I'm not sure the exact dates, but
1: there was you know, Rwanda, Rwanda, Rwanda uh, Kosovo and the Balkans, yep. uh, wow. there's Eastern Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, it was basically just the pains of the world resettling yeah. post, post the fall of the Soviet Union. That's a, that's a fascinating stat. I, I
0: never would have realized that. Yeah,
1: and so and so. Anyways, you have all these kids who are like, holy shit, this is actually quite different than what yeah. I thought. You know, and nineteen ninety 1990, February nineteen ninety four to me wasn't Rwanda. It was when Green Day's uh, you know Dookie came out. <laughs> um, and so so anyways, I, you know, there was this whole generation that was interested in going abroad and in particular going abroad and making a difference. And counter to the popular narratives, they were going abroad to try to make a difference and finding that they were absolutely dog shit at, there was no actual ability for them to do anything meaningful, that they were planted with these organizations and it was just uh, basically a waste of everyone's time. And this is full on through uh, you know, every type of company or every type of organization that they found. And the interesting thing is that the narrative is kind of the millennials as this, like, want a gold star, like, want a trophy for participation. But the kids that I saw who were coming back, and we spent a lot of time, I sent kids actually one summer to like 40 different countries. Uh, myself, in I, 2005, I went to, started in the Balkans, went to the Middle East, and ended in East Africa and uh, these kids knew that they were being useless and they knew that they were part of a superstructure that was just trying to clean up the messes of someone else Mm -hmm. and they wanted to figure out what they could do better about it. And when they got back to their colleges, to their universities, the answer was, well, go get a degree in development studies. And I had this very visceral reaction to the idea that you have a generation raising their hands saying they want to do something and being told to them, wait or go get another friggin' degree. So uh, Northwestern was at that time part, part of a very different superstructure. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's throw one one uh, huge institutional apparatus at another and see if we can fix poverty. Let's gets you so loaded up with debt that, that you can't
0: possibly yeah, imagine the exactly, exactly. other structural
1: problem. Exactly. Uh, and so I, um, Northwestern was a, it was a really lucky time that I was there, they had gone from uh, kind of, like this happens sometimes, but they had gone from like a great regional university to just a great university, mm-hmm. and with it they had increased their endowment by a factor of like 4x from 2 billion to 8 billion. And so they were flush with cash and they had already said that global engagement, whatever the hell that meant, was their, one of their like four or five operating prerogatives. So I was mm-hmm. like, look, I, I have a way to spend some of that money. And, uh, and ended up, I started a conference first while I was still a student. And then i got a grant to start a program design center that was actually sending kids out that's now gone on it got endowed for 100 million dollars by uh Bernie buffett who's warren buffett's sister um, long after i left because i was good about uh founder syndrome but anyways that whole experience i knew that i wasn't going to stay there and the reason that i wasn't going to stay and stay involved in that industry is that um uh, i've always like, I am so glad that there are people who will dedicate their lives to fixing mm-hmm. the problems of the structures we have and cleaning up. I want to be a person who impacts the structures so they don't make the problems in the first place. And so I ended up connecting during that time with, uh, it wasn't even a company yet, but uh, a, a guy named Ben who was running a thing called change.org that had just launched mm-hmm. with like a URL and, and one coder basically. And that's what pulled me out to San Francisco. And so somehow through the funnel of all my time in San Francisco, I uh, I, I like, left that behind a little bit. But when I broke out again and when I started to sit back and when I revisited Bitcoin, I realized that actually the part of it that was so interesting to me was not the connection to tech and buying coffee for your investor in Kuwait at a Coupa Cafe meeting. It was the change that works out of me. It was the go out and see what the superstructure of the world is and how you fix that power. So that's the, the very long-winded way of, of how I ended up actually figuring out that it was, uh, it was not a technology movement that captivated me, it was something much different.
0: It was uh, probably a currency. Yeah. Uh, right, so uh, I've, uh, I'm curious how you um, deconstruct the crypto world because I'm firmly of the opinion at this point that we're actually talking about two totally different ecosystems right now. Mm -hmm. There is Bitcoin, which is kind of Mm asset-centric, to your point. It's not just about the cool payment rails applications. This has now developed enough of a mysticism and a a groundswell of, 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 you know, near religious belief um, in its value that it truly is asset first and and the underlying technology is just how you move that value around. Everything else in crypto seems like it's a totally different movement, right? Mm -hmm whether you're talking about decentralized applications or decentralized um, resource sharing or how do you take control of your data uh, everything else that's being built a hasn't really seemed to have found product market fit Mm -hmm. maybe close with with some of them but um, but b it's just very tech centric right so Mm -hmm. all the enthusiasm the activity is around the developers that are actually building these applications and, and building the infrastructure to support potential future applications um, is that right? How, how do you? How, what's, what's your mental model for um, the crypto world? Um, and I ask that because um, you'll get ten different answers from ten different people. But I think you have a unique way of synthesizing information and and, and helping people kind of filter through everything and and, and categorize mm-hmm. or subcategorize. Mm-hmm. So what's what's your take? Uh, do you think about it entirely differently? Um, Am I, am I right or do you, do you agree or, or, or no, no I, I, I help people navigate this when you're pulling them in for the first
1: time? I absolutely agree and in fact I think that I think that it's at least two different worlds of Bitcoin and everything else. I think that there's probably a lot of gradations even within everything else. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that in a sarcastic or dismissive way right mm-hmm. Like to me so it was really interesting as I watched kind of the over the course of the last call it, 18, 24 months, right? Since the ICO boom really faded. And the ICO boom was weird because it was so clearly dead for like six months before it actually died. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I remember even being at Consensus 2018 and it was dead. Like that shit was, all, I mean, everyone knew that it was dead, but it didn't matter because it probably had three or four more months of uh, of cashing in on it in mm-hmm. some pockets and everyone, and that's why it felt, it felt so weird and frenetic at that event. You know, that's the one which is dirty. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. It was so weird because it's like, you know, this is dead, but at the same time, like there was, you know, it really wasn't until like August of 2018 that I think ICS were just there's no more, right? And that I think um so anyways, but the, the, the point is that like since that time, since it started dying, uh the obviously the Bitcoin narrative has been resurgent, and obviously that the maximalist took that uh, took that term and that was once kind of levied against them and used it as a badge of honor and recreated um, kind of their own identity narrative around that. And I think the interesting thing is that as I was trying to first understand kind of that perspective and where people were coming from, like part of what it was, uh, to me, I think that what I saw a lot, and I don't want to be uh, put words in people's mouths because uh, <laughs> this is an industry where people are very comfortable articulating exactly what they mean without you having to interpret it for them, um, but I often felt that when... And people were really passionate about, in particular, the monetary implications of Bitcoin and what it meant as a non-sovereign store of value, as a non-sovereign money as an uncensorable, unconfiscatable money. It wasn't so much that uh, Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem of projects and dApps were, uh, were like uh, useless or scams, although for some of them they were. Like, that's obviously a point of view but that that was the the things that they were trying to solve were so small in comparison to that bigger game mm-hmm. of disrupting uh, a, an entire kind of uh, you know modern since the beginning of nation-state system of sovereign money being the paradigm mm-hmm. that how the hell could you spend time on anything else um, and on top of that I think that the you know bitcoiners tend to have a really strong sense of of uh, of resource competition, let's call it, right? So to the extent that that gets, that that perspective gets uh, vigorous, let's say, um, it's that they, they have a sense that they're competing for limited time, attention, you know, uh, capital. And so that's why it's the, the, the focus on, on Bitcoin is so aggressive. So I think that that's kind of the, there is this Bitcoin side that is really playing this very fundamental not just technology, not just economic, but I even think political game. Even though I, I you know I've been talking about this a lot on the on the three to three, the daily podcast and video that I do. Um, I, I think, think this is like we're finally recognizing that this is a, a political force, an inherently political force, and that the asset itself may be apolitical, um, and that is actually in part of what makes it so powerful and so uh, so so kind of uh, exciting to people, but that it as a force in the world is an inherently political force. So you have all of that over here, and then you have this, this whole other set of things, which are... Uh, there's tons that's really interesting there, right? Like, um, I remember if you look at, uh, I think probably the most liked or clapped or whatever medium piece on this industry ever comes from Chris Dixon, it was Why Decentralization Matters, which I think mm-hmm. was in like February of 2018. And that was really laying out the Silicon Valley take on... How, uh, how big platforms, the big web 2.0 platforms, which were, which were supposed to be the greatest liberators of uh, individual user contributions ever, right? Mm-hmm. Like the shift from web one to web two was about from consuming to creating. And so all these platforms were about to be that. It was all user-generated content, and you create things, and you're empowered, and you know, gave rise to the influencers, and all these sort of things. And on the one hand, we did get that, but we also got the most powerful monopolies in some ways that have ever existed, um, and we have no idea how to deal with them. And uh, you know, Chris Dixon's post effectively articulated that. Uh, these companies, companies like Amazon, had hit a point where they were no longer able to grow uh, horizontally. So they had to grow deeper vertically in each and every user, which meant an inherent shift to extraction uh, and to a focus on extracting as much as you can from each individual user. And that creates the opportunity and the demand for a new development paradigm, which talks all the Web3 stuff. Um, So you have that whole strand of things over here. Then you have all of the the kind of DAO stuff, which is about human organization You know, like somewhere between a Facebook group over here and a full nonprofit over here. And what does that mean? And so, you have all of these interesting things that are happening that are, um, I I believe that you can, uh, it's not mutually exclusive to think that there's lots that are interesting about them uh, while also one being much more interested in one or another. Uh, just based on your kind of personal disposition, what problems you think are worse in the world, how Mm -hmm. you see the world. Um, But two, uh, also recognize that they are at fundamentally different cycles of product market fit, to use an an overused term, or just kind of like, uh, you know, market acceptance. So I do think, I think there's at least two uh, worlds, and it's, you know, the more that we can be precise about those terms and help people figure out where they're supposed to be, you know, swimming, I think the better. How do you... um
0: How do you think about kind of crafting narratives for the various projects, right? It it almost seems whether uh, it was kind of organic uh, that some of these quick one-liners developed uh, or whether it was intentional, it it does seem like the top market capitalization projects have um, very easy one-liners to remember, whether they're warranted or not. how much value is there in a sentiment-driven market and having a, a cohesive, very simple narrative uh, around your project, your company, and, and, and um, how is that gameable, right, uh, or like how easy is it to kind of parse through if, if someone has a narrative that sticks, whether it's just bullshit or uh, and, and mar- an actual marketing fluff, or if it's like the good form of marketing, which is, no, this is authentic, but it's also like it sticks because it's it's very easy to remember and, and it's kind of consistent with everything we know about those person, projects. Yeah, I mean, etc. I think that there's a couple things. Well, like narratives
1: are about resonance in some way; they're about distilling what. Uh, what, a, what a project, what a movement, you know, is about in a way that resonates deeply and quickly with people. Um, you know, the shortest version of narratives, and in some ways because of that, the most powerful version of narratives are memes, because they, they distill, they destroy nuance in favor of something that, that actually distills and captures that essence, uh, but in a really, really fast way. That's why memes can be so viral. They can be so powerful. Now, the flip side is the problem with memes is that they, they destroy nuance, right? Um, and, uh, and and so it's tough, but I think that you have, you know, from companies in this standpoint, there's, there's again, let's almost break things into two parts. There's uh, the underlying kind of protocols, right? So if we go back to what we were just talking about, we're not just talking about segments of an industry. We're talking about, different um, goals competing for the attention of the people who are interested in that industry, right? Mm-hmm. Are you gonna spend your the X amount of hours you have on, uh, on DAOs and new ways to organize humans? Or are you gonna spend the X amount of hours, amount of hours that you have on um, decentralized finance? Uh, or are you gonna spend it on um, just Bitcoin, the idea of a new you know, non-sovereign money system? Or are you gonna spend it on something else that I haven't even mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Like rights tracking for music or whatever it is. Uh, and so in some ways, there's narrative competition around uh, just what's worthy of people's time. And that actually operates uh, above and beyond and kind of mm-hmm. outside of company narratives. I think where company narratives come in is understanding what your stake in whichever uh, space you're trying to play in is. What are you trying to offer that space? Um, and I think that, you know, when I work with companies, it's really about uh, the, the combination of two things. On the one hand, I'm trying to help them figure out, like, what is actually driving that? Like, what is the the, the the process of figuring out the narrative of a project isn't really a, um, it's not exactly a marketing exercise in the traditional sense of trying to figure out the, the catchiest one-liner. It's mm-hmm. more like, why are you guys doing this? How do we distill that down? What's the point, you know? Uh, and so in some ways, it's almost like the development of, uh, of kind of like clarity around mission and vision. And As you might expect, some companies just have that, they know it, right? It's mm-hmm. super clear and apparent to them. Um, but then you have to blend that with what is the narrative space uh, based on those larger market conversations, right? And that's the thing I think the companies don't do. They they often will take the time to figure out what they're about, but what they don't understand is they're just messaging into a, a void or into a vacuum without understanding how how those kind of um, competitions for just the, the the larger why and what in the industry are, are happening. Uh, so I don't know. I think that the I think that your question to some extent was more about almost the um, the kind of the, the meme fueled battles of like what to spend our time on uh, and I think I mean I think it's interesting to but it's, it's broad, right there's different
0: there's different categories so um, you know maybe we'll take it from like the meta and conceptual into the you um, know the tangible so sure. let's talk about some of the different types of memes right mm-hmm. um, so ones that, that stick that are authentic that are like the most salient way to explain a project or, or company um, ones that destroy nuance, mm-hmm. right, uh, and, and are catchy and, and, and powerful nonetheless, but still there's something lacking underneath mm-hmm. it, and then maybe just talk about some of the outright silly ones right. or, or some of your favorite, because you, you study this closely. So um, we can go in, in whichever order you want, but, but let's talk about some examples of, of the sure. three, or maybe there are more categories, but those are the three obvious ones that stand out, right? Authentic, really powerful, but... Ultimately, vapid, mm-hmm. right? And then, um, and then the the, the just poor ones, just pure well, about The interesting thing is that middle category. Or is there is, is
1: there is there a such a thing as a bad meme, right? Because if it sticks, it, then it goes Well, it, that's that's so. actually what the interesting thing is that middle one, that middle mm-hmm. category uh, stickiness is kind of the, the vector of successfulness rather yeah. than whether it's uh, you know, it's it's kind of. Um, the the right meme will uh, will meme itself into existence, right? It becomes mm-hmm. self-fulfilling prophecy. Like I often say that this is actually like a battle for competing self-fulfilling prophecies. Yep. Um, but I think let's take actually that that most like resident authentic level. Mm-hmm. I think again we are there's there's multiple battles going on at any given time. And uh, and kind of in the middle of it, and, and for those of us who are hanging out on crypto Twitter and Bitcoin Twitter all the time, there's this just constant shifting back and forth where we're talking at each other. And it's in some ways it's almost like we're competing to figure out what we level up to the larger scale Mm -hmm. now then there's like the 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 larger kind of narrative question about what a thing is in the world Um, I would say that if you look at the the last six months in particular there has been a major shift a massive massive shift I believe in how the macro markets or macro market participants thinkers etc are looking at Bitcoin from how they did a year ago Uh, and they have adopted this kind of generational hedge um, SOV type narrative, right? It's why you see Raul Paul on all these podcasts now. It's why you're seeing Dan Tapiero get into the space. You're, all these guys who are have been a um, step removed or maybe they, they looked at it and they were interested and then they moved away and then they came back which is kind mm-hmm. of what Raul was. And what they're looking at is obviously um, you know the Fed starting to cut rates again. They're seeing money pumped into the economy. They're seeing the rise of MMT as an ideology. They're seeing stocks at the highest price they've ever been. They're seeing real estate at the highest price they've ever been. They're looking at um, what happens when boomers have to start selling those things because they can't keep getting a return. Whether millennials will buy and millennials are likely to be uninterested at those prices. And they're saying, shit, there's this whole other thing. Which look, why not take the option on that, right? And so this is much less about the idea of whether Bitcoin is a safe haven asset in the short term. I think these things are. Getting a little conflated right now. Um, really, they're only getting conflated because like three weeks ago, it performed really well on a day that Trump like was angry at China and everything else performed badly, and it was on six different you know cable news stations about whether Bitcoin is a safe haven. That's that's almost distracting to the larger question, which is does it act as a as a generational hedge? Is there a generational mega shift into being interested in something like this as opposed to the traditional places that they can park their money? And uh, so, in, in this in this example, though, what's what's the meme that people are around? is it safe haven is it uh it's it's it it hasn't been defined exactly but i think generational hedge that's the term that i keep coming back to Mm -hmm. but it's this idea of an alternative sov uh a safe haven it's not even safe haven because so the baggage of safe haven is that it's caught up in the way that um just markets function generally and like short kind of micro patterns and i don't think that's the point uh i think that the um the sov is the same kind of thing like it's really like again digital gold is convenient for for the sake of um of of memeing, but it's it's bigger than that, right? In terms of how people are looking at it, they're saying like from a superstructure perspective, if you are talking about the, um, the mega trends that will define a generation, uh, Bitcoin starts to look appealing. So I actually think in some ways this is an area where the narrative has raced a little bit ahead of the meme, and there isn't a quick and easy uh, meme yet. the digital gold is shorthand. Uh, Safe haven is a little bit of a shorthand, but each of those things is bringing with it the baggage of uh, what those things used to mean in different contexts. Um,
0: so, that, I think maybe a good example of an emerging battle over kind of what what is what is the definition, what what is the meme that sticks. Um, what are some of the most powerful memes in the industry right now? We'll get we'll we'll come back to whether you know kind of which bucket they fit in, but but just objectively, um, good, bad, positive, negative. Um, you know, company, protocol, like, what have been
1: the most effective, even if we hate them? Uh, Well, so, I think that one thing that's interesting is that since, um, since Bitstein's speech down in uh, Austin, which got everyone fired up and talking, um, uh, it was, it was about me, it was was like a meme warfare blueprint, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the... a fascinating thing that happened one is it did its damn job in the bitcoin community because you have seen so many bitcoin fixes this and uh, you know all of the things that were like listed by him in that since then um, I think in, in of that bucket bitcoin fixes this is uh, has been enormously effective because it is um, for people who hate it it's like so talk, talk a little bit more about this presentation so bitcoin fixes the oh the, the presentation presentation uh, yeah so uh, so Michael seen on twitter uh, went down to um, I can't remember what the name of the conference was. It was a Bitcoiner Bitcoin conference mm-hmm. in uh, in Austin. Michael
0: Goldstein, who's one of the co-founders of Satoshi yes. Institute, um, yeah. along with Pierre Rochard, yes. uh, someone else who's, who's very outspoken
1: as, as a uh, quote
0: unquote yeah. So look, look at me referring to people by their
1: handles, not their names. It's, well, <laughs> it, it's, it's fair enough because
0: I knew Bitstein, but I was I was having trouble placing the name for a second, and then I finally got to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about this presentation.
1: Well, yeah, so I mean, this presentation just it basically was an argument for how you deal with people who are uh, uh, combat or, like not interested in Bitcoin, other people in the industry, shitcoiners, all this sort of thing, and it was. Um, a couple things. One, it, I think it was uh, it was a bit tongue in cheek, but also like, serious enough that people were going to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. The text of it was shared before the video was shared. Um, there is uh, plenty of outrage to go around and, and invites in this industry already. And so the 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 thought, like basically the critique of it was that it, it uh, is just another example of um, why this industry is so hostile to newcomers because we're cannibalizing each other effectively. And and
0: uh, go- these points were basically um, here's how you should engage, and there's three different types of people. There's like Bitcoin believers, you're in the end group. There's um, there's kind of agnostic people that just don't know enough or they haven't yeah, been the educated, or three pre-pointers, I think you called them. Right. And here's what we should do to, to educate them and in you know you need kind of a consistent message, which anyone in marketing would tell you, right? right? Um, and then there's the no-pointers. I forget what the line was exactly, but it yeah. was like the no coiners should be bullied, yeah, uh, that was relentlessly point. and 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 repeatedly, and we should not let up until like basically, you know, they're they're dead. Right? The word the word and that was been, that was what sparked the word out. that triggered
1: people is bullying, mm-hmm. and I think I, I understand why. Like I'm am sympathetic to that for sure. Uh, it's just based on the word. I mean, fucking, I have a kid, he's coming up. Like I, I think about like the. Um, the normalization of bullying as a tactic and that's really like what uh, what dragged the conversation to another direction but at, without relitigating that whole fight, what's interesting is that effectively this was a presentation about memes and the power of memes and how Bitcoiners were better at memes but here's how you level up your meme game. Yeah. Um, so, so let's, let's talk, talk about two things. One, let's talk about what has happened uh, with Bitcoiners since that presentation from a mimetic standpoint and let's talk about what's happened with everything else because I, I think it's actually really fascinating so one, um, there were a few Specific memes that were pushed, and the one that I've noticed the most resonance with is Bitcoin fixes this. Mm -hmm. So, the way that you use this is uh, you know, someone tweets their like their disbelieving, you know, eye popping critique of some crazy thing that happened in the macro markets, or you know, whatever it is time preference things where people are uh, short termist instead of thinking long term, and you tweet Bitcoin fixes this.
0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients. The deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. The best part Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register.
1: I think that there's part of the power in this, or in that, and why it's been so resonant, is that like if you don't like Bitcoin, it's so annoying that you can't help engage. Like it's so almost like cringy and ridiculous. You can take it to such a ridiculous extreme that people are like they throw down their phones in anger and want to fight about it, which obviously is just more attention on the thing. um, The second thing is. Uh, it it, it effectively asks people who are kind of paying attention maybe halfway or passively, like, well, how can it fix this, which is an invitation to dig in more. So I actually think in some ways, going back to this idea of this generational hedge, the Bitcoin fixes this meme, like nudges in that direction in a way that I think has been pretty powerful to see. And what's interesting
0: is even, I think not enough people appreciate this. This is certainly true, um, even for for me back in 2013, when I was just on like the, our Bitcoin forums. Mm-hmm. That's where my handle came from, right? I just created this throwaway account to, mm-hmm. to, to engage people on Reddit, which was already a cesspool, you yeah. <laughs> then, right? Um, this is before, before Alexis came back. And And one of the things that I found fascinating was um, you could learn a lot from the folks that were like regurgitating all this shit, um, and you wouldn't necessarily walk away if you had half a brain and say, um, Oh, well, this tech isn't interesting because this person's argument is stupid, right? Like the stupid argument in many cases, or like the shit posts in many cases, did force you to engage. And if you're someone that might be attractive to bring into the, 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 the community, as it were, um, you're kind of okay even with idiots trolling them, because if they spend any time on it, then you can get them at least to the point of, well, actually. Like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But this, this, and this, I hadn't really thought about it until I, I like got into this debate, right? Mm-hmm. Like, actually, this could be interesting. And then you know, maybe that, that idiot forces you uh, to engage with someone that actually knows what they're talking about. And, mm-hmm. and, and you at least kind of get people going down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if many people that got into the industry and their first impression was with, like, uh, world-class thinker, an explainer, right? Yeah. Like I don't know how many people got in from like sitting at the same table as Wences, yeah. Czars, from Zappo, or like Balogie, right? Or, or like any of the like the luminaries were like, well, obviously if this guy had me in a room for like an hour, on yeah. the whiteboard, I'm gonna fucking buy whatever he's selling, yeah. right? Um, but you, you can't grow a community like that. Like you, you have to have like uh, some, you have to have some some real interesting people. who will
1: we'll be politically correct like at the periphery and they're still you could argue serving the value function I mean I think I think that there's also like a little bit of humility that we could use here which is like uh, you know to the extent that we are worried that these sort of uh, in group arguments will turn people away I mean, maybe like certainly like if I could snap my fingers and have everyone just have like productive conversation all the time, I would. Right? Like if you look at the like my act of rebellion from like the, the infighting is that I just don't cover it I media. You're never gonna see an LRS uh, thread with me highlighting like some stupid back and forth. It's just it's not it's not valuable. See, I see I, I disagree about the value of it because I actually
0: if if I could wave a magic wand, I would keep it as fucked up as it is right <laughs> now. I would keep it I, I would it, it's like the perfect level of like fucked up. Uh, yeah. like the, 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 the just total chaos yeah. uh in the system is why the New York agreement was not passed. And no, I was like, well, okay, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we, we didn't come yeah, to the table fair. and have, like, productive dialogue and then have all of the major miners and all the major funders, sure. investors no. and, and exchanges come together and say, you know what, this is the productive, smart thing to do. We're going to compromise on this. Yeah. It was, like, trump hats and, like, vicious online behavior. Yeah. That yeah. Well, you can, you, you can argue whether that is structurally good for Bitcoin. Maybe Maybe we're going to find out in five years that was... Like the the, the the end before anybody knew it was the end because now we can't scale or now Bitcoin gets outflanked or whatever. Um, but it certainly doesn't seem like that right now. It kind of seems like the chaos is what no that, I mean made the network point. more
1: resilient. Right? That that's a fair point and and maybe maybe that's like more a better way to describe it is more like. I think that it's loud enough, and I don't have to highlight that sort of thing. I wasn't doing LRS during UAS. Ever. I probably would have felt pretty different about it. then. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. So let, let's actually go back to this meme question, though, because there's another. Impact. I really like. I actually like Bitcoin fixes this as a thing. I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting to watch. But so this part of this uh, whole thing was basically a critique that was like other communities can't meme as well as we can, mm-hmm. and. Damn if they didn't listen. Like, so I don't know if you've been watching, but I feel like over the last two, three weeks, like, like the Ethereum community has been like, yes, fuck okay, it. Let's do, let's play the same game. Let's like not think, let's not write off the strategy because of where it came from. Mm-hmm. There have been more ETH is money posts over the last two weeks. Like it is it is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Now you have podcasters who are being like easy funny, newsletters being like easy money, it's coming up on like bigger things, like, like you yeah. know, and then all of a sudden when news comes today or whatever, like yesterday that BitPay is now letting Ethereum uh, mer- merchants accept Ethereum, all the ETH is money people are like, We told you ETH is money and all of a sudden that news has context in a meme. Yep. Like I'm totally holding aside any substantive arguments about this, but like the, the they're meaning it and At least from the standpoint of like forcing this conversation, forcing the conversation internally. Like, is he the money? Like, that's the biggest thing that people have been talking about the Talas presentation or his interview at at Ethereal, right? Mm -hmm. It's like his response to that. So, uh,
0: certainly in the last month, maybe this year, that that could be one of the most powerful memes, and it is in response Mm -hmm. um, to. Bitstein's uh, presentation, uh, which is uh, fascinating. Yeah, and in, in large, in large part, and it's super interesting. So, I mean, I think that the you know part of
1: why we all get so addicted to being in this industry is that the stakes are absolutely goddamn enormous. Of the things, I mean, honestly, and, I, and let's let's be actually, that will be a little kumbaya for a minute. Almost all of the things that people are trying to do are an order of magnitude more significant than your average consumer tech startup, right? Mm-hmm. From like what, what DeFi wants to be. Even if you think it's insane and it's just a house of cards that's going to fall, what DAOs want to be, even if you think they're just vectors for attack, like the things that people are trying to do are so much more significant than giving, you know, fucking Instagram influencers another line of revenue or whatever, which is literally all I spent my time on when I was in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so the the, the there, you have this combination of enormous stakes and. Real serious ability for uh, any kind of loud person in the community to have a a meaningful impact on the way that these things um, nudge, the way that, and and the battle lines are about narratives. They're Mm -hmm. not about companies because it's it's such an underlying, uh, you know, protocol level conversation. So So that's that's why we all get so addicted to it. Is that it's it's this. It's this massive, um, you know, live-action warfare with really serious outcomes that are, are, that the future is unwritten, right? Like, it's like mm-hmm. Lawrence of Arabia, you know? Like, nothing is written. Um, there, so I, I know we share a mutual
0: friend and one of your clients, so I won't name my name, but maybe this is going to be a leading question. It's more of a, a, a pre-disclosure, if you use this as an answer, um, but I, I certainly would, would consider, it I'll answer it and stop being cryptic after you answer first. Are there any smaller projects that you feel like have really good potential around a meme um, or a one-liner or, or, or anything that um, is extremely effective but it just might not be as top of mind as what the Bitcoin and like Ethereum memes are because those are the major assets, those are what everybody pays attention to. Is there anything further down the market value list where where a team has either really effectively created the kernel of a meme that um, just needs to grow in, in, in terms of like community attention or, or one that's got real potential just because it's so authentic, it's so differentiated and you can see it taking off. And, and one of the, um, this isn't the answer to the, the, the cryptic question, but one of the ones that uh, for me uh, made sense, I, I don't know that there's a meme around it, but at least kind of the one-liner around how do you connect the offline world and the online is Chainlink. And Chainlink maybe got like way ahead of itself in terms of value um, versus what it can actually do right now. But you kind of knew last year that that was gonna be you know, pretty effective. Zcash, like HTTPS um, versus HTTP for new mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. Like, those are seem like they have a sticking point, might be some kind of early examples of that. But But anyone else come to mind Um, Because I want to make it more about, um, can you craft a meme? Because I think that's what a lot of people care about uh, in terms of breaking through versus just what are
1: emergent. Right. Right. So I think that there is two of So I would actually argue that there's no one that has anything close to a meme yet. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm interested in in some ways is what are the spaces that... What are the, the spaces where people, it, it, once they're explained, people are intuitive that like someone's going to get that right. That feels important for someone to do. Because I think that you can build a great meme out of that. Um, and so what I mean by that is that I might, like, I would rephrase the two examples that you use in, in, in a slightly different way. So Zcash, the idea that we need a privacy-preserving coin, like, feels very intuitive to people. And it feels more and more intuitive the more that you watch Surveillance Money Uh, Start to come on the scene um, in the wake of Libra and the the kind of rise of uh, central bank digital currencies. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, once you get into that, people will have tons of debates about, you know, uh, not like the specific technology behind it, the specific ways, attack vectors based on those things, whether it's going to be regulatory. There's a million things in there. But the idea at a core level that there should be privacy preserving money or that that should be a a key feature of our money is is very resonant to people. Sometimes that resonates right back into people being like, well, what's Bitcoin's plan for that? You know? um, so that that I think is how I put the Zcash kind of that underlying narrative. Uh, like it, it's like the primordial stew of narrative potential. Um, with Chainlink, it's the same thing. There's going to need to be a way to get outside data into smart contracts, right? Like somehow there's going to we got we we, you can't have these things function entirely outside. That is super resonant. Like and there, every technical critique uh, is you know fine, like maybe it won't be Chainlink, or maybe it won't be that way, or maybe it's an impossible problem and it makes us rethink the enterprise and smart contracts. But to the extent that you think that there's anything interesting in that space, that feels like something that someone will solve. And so you get interested in the company because once a company has, this is something that someone will solve, uh, and then uh, it, it's just a matter of who, uh, you get, I think there's a lot of power there. Um, I think another one right now that fits in that paradigm is uh, is Cosmos in some ways. I think that um, the more that, when people see a bajillion free chains launching all the time and they have any sense of free market, there's gonna be competition and whatever, the idea of interoperability is something that can plug in. Um, it feels intuitive. Like, and I mean, it may actually even be more intuitive given that there are a couple high profile projects, right? That there's mm-hmm. this kind of battle about how you would do it between Cosmos and Okta or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So I think interoperability feels like one. Uh, I don't know that I think, uh, I'm probably just forgetting uh, some off the top of my head right now, but I, I think yeah, that, like, so I will, I will say for sure, I don't think anyone has a, a quick look liner or, or mm-hmm. anything that's, that's memified yet. Um, but uh, but I look, whenever I'm talking with a company or a client, like, that's what I'm thinking about is like, what is, uh, what is the, 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 the thing? I think um, Coda is exploring some interesting space with this. So Coda has a succinct blockchain that's their their language. So they use ZK-SNARKs uh, to keep a constant side. So they replace the entire history of the blockchain that you can audit with a mathematical proof that uh, the thing that you agreed to before is the same plus you know plus the new mm-hmm. stuff that's been added um i think that has a lot of hurdles because it's so like it was very speaking of things that were intuitive just really intuitive to people that you can go back and look at the entire history of a blockchain and that's the kind of the source of truth having to then abstract that uh, can be really a challenge. So I do think that they have that area, but on the flip side, a constant size blockchain means that they preserve forever, if it works, the power for anyone to be a full node, any device to be a full mm-hmm. node. I can imagine that being resonant uh, to the extent, it's almost though in, in, uh, in contrast to, there's been so much conversation about how hard it is to sync an Ethereum full node and all this sort of stuff. So I feel like there's, there's probably a million more that I'm uh, not remembering, but, um, that's what, what I'm looking at is that underlying what well, makes sense to people intuitively from it. Like someone's going to do this, or this this should be done. Uh, it's it's interesting
0: that you seem to implicitly make a distinction between uh, you call it the primordial stew of a meme, right? So so basically a very cohesive narrative that seems like it's close to fully baked, it just hasn't taken off yet. Um, at what point does an interesting narrative become a meme? Are they interrelated, or is it just like? You, like memes or memes, right? They just they it's, take off and no one really knows. It's, it's on know when. It's like, really. Are they black swans, right? right? Yeah, I mean, Maybe it's. One, one way it's really hard. I think it's also,
1: it's, it's particularly hard for a company to manufacture a meme about itself. I think part of what has made memes resonant, and even my, you know, Ethereum is money for it's like, that's not coming, the Vitalik didn't say that. It's like, yeah. Ryan, Sean Adams, and all these guys were pushing it. And they're associated closely with Ethereum, and they're kind of like the front line of the Ethereum guard, but they're not. You know, they have their own company, their own funds, their own whatever. Um, so obviously, Bitcoin, like, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto didn't call up. Uh, Michael and asked him to write this presentation, you know, as like their new marketing outfit. It was, it was kind of authentically, it, it feels authentically generated and kind of rising up from the community. So it's, I find it incredibly hard. It's almost like as a company, if you're trying to, um, to kind of to memify it you really have to like put out what you're doing into the world and to some extent let those things come like I don't think that for example Cosmos is really memeing interoperability they're just talking about it all the
0: time and they're doing it you know? it's, it's more about like self-awareness and then <laughs> like an embrace of what your customers, what your users like, what people say, like right? It's, it's like the, the difference between what you say
1: about yourself versus exactly. what I mean, people say about you as your brand. Putting on putting on my like consultive, like strategic consultive hat, I think the thing that uh, that you can advise people to do is um, embrace the, the simple kind of spear tip thing about them that is the resident thing, knowing and basically. It's it's really hard for entrepreneurs and just you know all of the people at an early project to um, <laughs> to be comfortable with the inherent reductiveness of a single thing. You know, I'm sure like if Zach is listening to this right as we talk about causes, like, so much more than interoperability. You know, like I like can like guarantee the code doesn't do this. And they're like no, no, but there's so no much it's more. It's right? complicated. Yeah, and uh, and um, but I think that you can understand that like people need like easy doors in and it feels like as an entrepreneur as a project it's better if you give them a hundred doors but really just having like one really super crystal clear door that you kind of know what's behind or at least you think you know what's behind is often a lot easier so um, I think it's it's, it's so enormous like when I like, let's put it this way if I'm ever taking on kind of a, a project to consult from a strategic or communications perspective then no part of our uh, agreement or scope of work does it say we're going to create the meme right yes. it's going to be we're going to explore like the narrative that are really authentic to you and help you figure out that, that core positioning in the context of the market. And then we're going to figure out the right content to tell that story. And it's going to be some combination of writing. It's going to be whatever. But well, one thing, it's, it's not, uh, I'm not going to distill it down, or promise at least, to distill it down to a one-liner that you can smash, you know, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, just because so I get you fired know? after three months every single time, you know, yeah. if, I, yeah. if, I, if yeah. I promise that.
0: Um, so, so what is the, is there a consistent, um, piece of feedback or kind of set of list of, of, of pieces of feedback that you give most of your clients just as a starting point to engage, right? Like here's here's the framework for how you should be thinking about this. Um, is there like a do this, don't do this uh, master list? Um, in, in kind of broad strokes
1: we advise people to do to, to? There's more of a process than a, a master list so the process is I think the thing the thing that I tend to find that people haven't done the exercise of is how does whatever story we want to tell fit with the larger stories that are going on you know so they like, because you get you I mean you cannot not be myopic to some extent uh, if you're building a company um, I mean Jesus I, I like unless you maybe with the possible exception of you're building a media company where it's your job to pay attention to everything uh, but everyone like it's so hard there's so many things to do right so taking the time and having the exercise to be like well what's shifted in terms of how we talk about all these different things what's it like when we say x how is it going to be received based on the conversations that people are having right but like, more broadly like what's the space if we're an exchange what do people think that there's room in the exchange market do they think it's crowded? how are people talking about that what are the things that they think are missing from the exchange market what are things that are uh, that they, they're not thinking about exchanges yet but that we could make them think so so that market context is one the second is actually part of the process the second part of the process is really about mediums because mediums the the right medium for the message shifts so dramatically on the basis of what type of market it is on the basis of uh, things that you can't control like Twitter algorithms so like when I started Long Read Sunday like, like people, people weren't like threading, threading as much yet like there wasn't yes. that wasn't yet a huge medium like there were some people uh and it started certainly, certainly when when started, i started no one was doing um threads for curation right like threads like a thread of threads type thing mm-hmm. it was definitely the, the first one of those that i saw um and twitter I liked it it was a new thing people like it was promoted and you know the it was popped it now threads get fucking destroyed like i mean i have thought seriously about just pulling uh, long read Sunday from Twitter because it gets buried. And like people who are, are literal super fans, fans who have been subscribed like for a year and read everything are like, I literally never see an interview. Yeah, a point in view yeah anymore. it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and and so, so, so to me, that's it's also crazy that you're, you're always at the mercy of the right? algorithm. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and, and I, I would really say that there's like, like as a content creator, like, like it, it is not, not worth a single thing. ounce of my uh time and tears to weep at that because it's just the case you just have to know you know you have to be prepared you have to deal with it i mean another example is um you know twitter did this amazing thing in some ways in buying periscope which is this great product i mean people who are like probably the majority of people who are watching uh this are watching it there versus any other medium where it's streaming at the moment uh and um uh, but they they barely they don't care about it like they've clearly given it no love Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's so amazing about it is that you don't have to be a user of that app to actually discover it. It's just built in, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really like you get however many um, viewers your uh, you know you you have. Like it's it's basically it's proportional to your followers. So if you have built a, a good Twitter following, they're going to see it even if you have uh, if you don't have them following you on Periscope. Um, the problem is that it's buried up, like you. Like people only happen to catch it if they're on mobile because it sits up there at the top. Um, people, when they watch, their instinct isn't to like because they just start watching, right? And Twitter doesn't see that as like engagement, right? It's not counting that as an engagement metric, really, and so it's not promoting it. Um, so it's kind of like there are limits to that, and you just have to know these things. But I think about this all the time in terms of uh, what different opportunities for, for people to tell their story are, right? Like. Um, you know, should companies start a newsletter right now? Should they start a podcast? Should they do whatever? And um, so, so, yeah, so I think I think I spent, like I start always with like message and what the message is, but I, I spend a lot of time, especially these days on what's the right medium for this? I mean, even like if you look last summer, uh, like the depth of the bear market is an awesome time to write big long posts because people actually read it and engage with it. And people are not doing that the same way anymore, you know? So yep, it's, um, a, it's, it's really interesting and, and I think it's high, highly dynamic uh, in this space, for sure. we covered a lot. Uh, any parting words of
0: wisdom? Um, so maybe uh, not just how you think about like, the, the hit list for how you explain um, marketing and, and, and general engagement and PR strategies, but, um, but just in general, for maybe for newcomers to in the industry that are um, down the rabbit hole, excited, want to get involved, but they're like, I didn't even... Know
1: where to start, or I don't know how to make a name for myself, or I don't, I don't know how to you know get found. Well, um, i I think, I think that the I think that trying to like, like spending, spending some time figuring out which part of this thing, thing really like gets you fired up is is super valuable, uh, and it doesn't have to be a single answer. Like I find myself often feeling like rather tribalist comparatively. You know, like I think um, I, I I tend to going back to that perspective. Like I said, I thought I was going to work in like. Post-conflict stuff or current mm-hmm. conflict stuff forever. So, so I, I find, find myself, myself um, more, more personally, personally driven or pulled back to the, the uh, Bitcoin unseasable money side, side when mm-hmm. I've you know, heard stories of people who like, like spent time and people who have like lost their houses and had all their stuff confiscated. But that's me personally, and so that gives me kind of like a, a, a kind of an anger from which to engage with the industry. Right. Um, I think that people knowing uh, you know, on a really deep level, not just because it's like the community that they have and resonate it resonates with them both, I would also say that right. like, you don't have to like everyone in a space uh, to uh, to be um, a, a proud and vocal member of the community. You know, I've been watching, um, I don't know what his real name is, Distributed Heath is his handle on Twitter. Uh, and he's very uh, like proudly gay, he's exactly. out, and he's been hammering the Bitcoin community for homophobia and for misogyny that he sees kind of mm-hmm. rampant and he's making it a point. And I think that's really awesome that he's not backing down from this community, he's, he's not, not going to just go find himself in something else because he believes in sound money, he's really passionate about mm-hmm. that, um, but he's also not going to let something that, he's gonna he's to try to use his voice to make it closer to the space that he wants, right? Yep. Uh, and and I, I look at that, and I'm like, fuck yeah, yeah. like do that. And so, so I think that it's important the, too. Is like, it, you know, know the, the lines seem to be clearly drawn, but yeah. they're they're really like the the beauty, the, the beauty of these things, things are is, is that, that from a the, the they are, are permissionless, right? right? And you and can and get in there and you can, can do whatever. Right. Now, now it's, it's what, what agony you want to, want to take on, you know. You also don't have to go fight. You can just find the set of people who are kind of seem to be most aligned with you, but. I think that part of what makes this, uh, this this whole space so interesting is that like you just can't easily draw lines. You you can't import presumptions of political bias or. Uh, belief system from anywhere else onto this—it's just like, such a weird launch. I mean, I, all of us really. It's what all, all it takes is one person who you've been listening to and you totally agree with in one thing, that's and exactly starts to tweet true. about something where you're like, "That's literally the most abhorrent like worldview in the world to me." Like, what, what does it does mean it about me that I'm super aligned with around. you over here? Yeah. But that's like how how the world used to be before we were drawn into these easy buckets and yeah, like bolster exactly. demographics. Like, like it used to be um, like. You fucking scream at each other over wine at dinner, and you agree to disagree at the end because there's six other things that you like about each other, and yeah. your kids hang out, and that's just the way the world works. Uh, but anyway, so I, I don't know. I think that f- like spending time finding your space, finding what you're passionate about, as cheesy an answer as that is, I think is really valuable, and then make content. Like there is no, as much as it seems, as much as it seems like there are too many podcasts like bullshit. Like the one, there's uh, there's a ton of great podcasts, there's also a ton of podcasts that aren't great, or don't offer something mm-hmm. new. or are totally fine with just like having stood out. But like, at what point did we decide that the only version of a podcast that's available is a you know one-on-one interview, right? Like, there's so many different ways you could do it. Do a roundtable. Do a whatever. Do a d- drop-up. Uh, this is what I keep talking about. Drop up. a bomb of a series with like the six people who all have a really interesting point of view on something. Drop all at once, make a huge flash and then say, "I'll come back again." On Netflix now. Um, yeah, just, I, I feel personally attacked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because we've um, we, talk we talked about this internally too, right? Um, it's is this a great use of time, right? I, I have you know ninety thousand Twitter followers, followers, right? So I know that we're going to get some distribution from this. Yeah. You know, we're working with the blockers group guys, you know, I, I've been around for a while, so I'm fortunate to be able to pick up the phone or shoot an email, and people are like, yeah, I'll, I'll come on and I'll we'll chat. But um, like, is it's it different, different right? right? Like i know that it'll you know we could put something good out there right uh, i like talking to people so i know that it, it could be something good but is it different right like what's the what's what's, what's 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 the unique angle is it just like people want to see me interviewing there's a, there's a case for that there's there is a case but 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 i think your, your larger point of it doesn't matter just like push it out there because there's so many different niches that you can fill um, in a market that's just exploding in, in terms of overall growth. Well, let's also put it this way: I'm a lot more
1: interested in you figuring that out while doing something that, for now, like is fun for you, is engaging, is interesting, it, yep. it's worth the time that it takes. Exactly. Like, figure out that rather than just not doing it and coming back to it. Yep. Um, because I, I, this is the other thing, and this is something that I will say too to any kind of graders, even if you're just doing the traditional one-on-one, like. like it is is such a gift to this industry that so so many people are willing to spend so much time trying to create content. I mean, this is a learner's paradise, like nothing I've ever seen. Uh, Like Like, it is is so cool. And I don't think that, you know, like it may be that your like first 50 podcasts you ultimately view as a false start because that wasn't the right format. You should be, I don't know, streaming a game while you're talking about crypto. Who knows what will change? But I think that doing it in public and learning in public, like. the only potential cost is your time and whether you could be spending it better doing other things. Because if 10 people hear your podcast, it's still 10 people who have decided to use their time and were like, that's good. That's worth it. And the other thing that's super interesting about that is uh, people talk about compound
0: growth quite a bit. But until you've produced content, you don't realize that compound growth can mean really, really tiny growth. Yeah. Uh, lots of like peaks and valleys yeah. in like a very tiny growth environment and then all of a sudden just something fucking hits well, right yeah. yeah and it, it goes good stage, good. right it, like in terms of like I, I i don't know how many podcasts i've done or i'm on the other side right i'm getting interviewed or you know in the press or whatever, or whatever you're just talking about an update or whatnot and you never know what's going to get picked up and i remember i did the up the center podcast last year and you know Fred wilson blogged about it and then you know a few other people picked it up and um, you just don't know. And time. some of it depends on the interviewer, right? right? I've done that That's same, same exact interview. Right? I don't know how many times. Um, but but they, they just did, you know, uh, Brian Crane, you know, just did a, a phenomenal job of the interview. He knew his shit by cold. Um, he knew the inner workings of how we were thinking about the business. And, and, and it was, it was you know, great, um, but still a <laughs> loose interview, wasn't it? Pre-recorded, right? Um, so, so I think some of it depends on the, the, the person and so much of it just depends on, uh, the frequency and like the muscle number Because right? he's done 150 of those, yeah.
1: Um, and so there's there's kind of compound growth in that respect as well. So, so uh, and I do agree that it's like for those of you who are creating random, there, there is some randomness too, and just like right place, right timing, which is probably the best argument for consistently doing it. It's like I know there's sometimes like days where I'm like, this is like the best three or three I've done, it's yeah. absolutely fire. Same with LRS, it's like this one is absolute freaking gold, and it just Does it, doesn't, doesn't pop, doesn't, doesn't hit, right? yeah, right? Like, yeah, it just is. It can be very frustrating. It's like, it's, I've done that with posts before, where
0: I spend like a week going back and forth on certain things, and it's well researched, and then you know, and it's just a complete dud. And then um, I'll, I'll shit something out in 15 minutes, and it's just like fire. Right? Um, and then the flip side, some of those fire posts are like very topical, and you maybe get like one new cycle. Some of the ones that didn't get picked up immediately, you'll see it like retweeted like six months later. It's like. Do this, guy do something, and then it, and then it blows up, right? I wrote a, I wrote this, this post last, year last year.
1: I wrote this post last year called Complexity Theater mm-hmm. that like no one really noticed right away. It was like fine, but, like did yeah. like a very middling amount of claps on Medium. I yeah. like to use yeah, that silly so so. metric or heuristic, but and then uh, like. like it continuously like every month or two someone like uses exactly. that term, re references it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like probably the most resonant like term that I've introduced yeah. through a through written piece. Exactly. Like unfortunately I love writing but I don't do as much of it because it's it's easier right now with the amount of kind of consulting work and all these other things to produce like a visual medium or different and I also think it's more like right now, to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only daily uh, podcasts in the, yes. in the entire space from a news and analysis standpoint. There's some YouTubers and the guys who do that stuff, for a little bit more like streaming and charts and that sort of thing, but from just a straight like here's the news and here's my analysis I'm mm-hmm. like the only one. And I wanted to fill that gap because I think there's a community gap, like, and I'm pretty sure that once this market picks up, I mean really that's all I was waiting for that, like in some ways and just kind of building that out. but. But yeah, but yeah from, a, from a writing standpoint, like that complexity theory thing keeps being resonant. And like the Bitcoin account, when it got restored, whoever the hell is taking this on an hour it stopped being a Bitcoin Cash account, like one of the first things they tweeted was that, that post again. So you never, Well, if you're looking for 3-3, if you're looking for Long
0: Read Sunday, uh, or exclusively if you're, if you're looking for the Narrative Watch on Mondays, um, we do work with the Notorious at NLW. Uh, on all of the above and syndicate uh, his content and do a little original stuff for, for Masari as well. Um, Daniel, thanks for, for coming in. It's always, right. always, always, it always fun to see you and chat about this. I'm sure uh, this should be a, a good episode and if uh, people want to find you or me, uh, I think most people know by now. So, <laughs> yeah, always uh, Twitter. Exactly, exactly. Right. All right, it's, it's been a, a big week here at Masari. Hope everybody has enjoyed this slate uh, of, of interviews that we've done. done. Uh, we got a bunch of more good ones next week. I'll be in Crypto Springs, in LA, um, early, uh, early, early half of the week. So, uh, so we'll, we'll certainly have some good conversations out there. You can expect to have these on iTunes and Spotify uh, from the Blockworks Group team uh, in, uh, in the next couple of weeks. So, thanks again. Uh, until next time, enjoy your weekend. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.